Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another King and Servant podcast. This is now show number 22. And I've been out of action for a couple of weeks, but that's because I had a man called. And there's a very different, uh, there's a distinct difference, rather, between a general cold or a normal cold and a man cold. A man cold, it takes you out longer than you want to go. And that, that was that was actually my experience for the past three weeks. So if, if there's anybody out there who's been waiting for new shows to come on, it's because I've been coughing involuntarily. <laughs> I've been uh, having sleepless nights with a head cold and a sore throat, boo-hoo, all that stuff. But I'm back in God's providence and in God's sovereign plan. He wants us to be healthy for this uh, this podcast. And um, I'm joined tonight, actually, by um, a very special guest. And I would like to say, back by popular demand. <laughs> because last time uh, we did the show together, Dee Dee, there, there we go, I've just given the guest away there. But last time we did a show together, we, um, we covered a lot of preterist material. And I got a lot of feedback from that. Uh, but the number one thing that people were wanting was... Um, a more of an expository teaching uh, on why we've come to this preteristic conclusion concerning eschatology. So I thought it would be a great idea to have you back. And I know you've compiled uh, almost, I think, something that would warrant now a book on the Olivet Discourse. And for those who are new to that phrase, the Olivet Discourse, it's basically that uh, sermon that Christ preached or that teaching that Christ taught to his disciples in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. This is known as the Olivet Discourse because he taught from the Mount of Olives and talk, talked about, rather, the impending judgment upon Jerusalem. But there's been a lot of misunderstanding over this particular pericope or this portion of Scripture. And I remember myself, uh, when I first began studying eschatology as a good, faithful dispensationalist, I remember um, struggling with certain key verses in that uh, discourse, namely verse 34, I believe, when it says, this generation shall not pass away. And I remember trying to contrive so many excuses uh, and come up with so many interpretations that would deny the obvious of what that verse was clearly addressing, which was, as we covered in the previous show, Christ was addressing his contemporary audience and that there was a judgment that was going to take place within 40 years, within a generation. And it's abundantly clear. And we covered that in the first show that we did together, Dee Dee. But what I'd like to do in this show is go through expositorily, if that's a word, uh, expositionally, that's the word I'm looking for, and look at what the Olivet Discourse actually teaches. And we're going to just seek to harmonize them as well because it's not just Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and Mark 13, but we also have Luke 17. We also have Luke 12 when all these different mm -hmm. parables are used. And in my careful study, I've uh, sought to harmonize a lot of these verses um, because I, I often found that this was one of the frustrations I had actually with a lot of partial preterists or orthodox preterists. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Do we have to start again? Yeah. <laughs> we'll edit that out. These orthodox preterists such as Gentry. I remember the transitional verse issue. And believe it or not, that was one of the only theological disagreements I had with my good friend, Pastor Gene. I mean, we were pretty much on the same page theologically, right down to the very small particulars even concerning eschatology. But remember, we had a disagreement when it came to the uh, transitional verse. And if those listening are new to that phrase, 
stay tuned because we're going to hopefully cover that. Um, but this needs to be fleshed out, and I think a lot of people can benefit from it because my chief frustration, as I alluded to a few moments ago there, was these orthodox preterists were presenting sound biblical argumentation for their position to the refutation of hyperpreterism, but I found that they left substantial gaps. Oh, can't have gaps with preterism. Uh, no. Okay. And it's like, okay, we've got this sorted out, but what do you do with this verse over here? Okay, we don't have the transitional verse, but then when you read Luke 17, we find that these events are put before the so-called transitional verse. And were there any answers out there? Very few, if at all. So... I'm assuming or I'm with the confidence that there's other people out there who care about this, you know, the way I did, and how I had to wrestle with this to come to the the consistent conclusions that the Bible uh, clearly presents. So with that prologue done, uh, let us begin and uh, sure. let me introduce Miss Dee Dee once more and, uh, yeah, just get the ball rolling by talking about the context of how the Olivet Discourse is given to us in the Synoptic Gospels. Sure, and just a little, to to add a little bit to what you had said, if anyone who is new to this view, when they hear it for the first time, I, I think I said even on one of my podcasts, I go, so so let me tell you how I came to such an asinine conclusion. <laughs> you know, because they hear this and they're like, come on, you know, how can that possibly be fulfilled? How can that possibly be fulfilled? just want to say that's perfectly natural, and hopefully we will address all of those, because I'm, I'm aware that they're there, mm-hmm. and there's reasonable there's reasonable answers for them. So so the context is Jesus is, it, it's part of the um, woes where Jesus is pretty much, you know, given the Pharisees a dressing down and, you know, telling them what for. Mm-hmm. And that is the context leading up to the Olivet Discourse. And I think it's Gentry who really brought this out. A lot of people will start with Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, and that's really not the place to start. You really have to start with the tenor of what's going on in Matthew chapter 23, and even before then, but at least starting towards the end of, of chapter 23. Um, so you have Jesus pronouncing the woes up, upon the Pharisees, and then you know he he culminates it with a statement that says, um, "Most assuredly I say to you, all of these things shall come upon this generation," which is again the same phraseology we see in verse thirty-four, where this generation is mentioned again. So I submit you really have to see. And I think it's Matthew twenty-three. It's a verse. Um 37, or is that um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those who stoned the prophets, how often I will gather your children? Um, it's 36. 36, I was close. Yes. Oh, yeah, and then it goes 36. on to say, now your house is left desolate, right? Correct. Um, let, let, let me actually read the, <coughs> the starting with verse 34 in Matthew um, 23. He says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets and men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he continues and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, 
your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it is the pronouncement of all those woes upon the Pharisees and the declaration that their house would be left to them desolate that forms the whole backdrop, backdrop Excuse me for the Olivet Discourse. You really have to understand what's going on there or at least have it in mind mm-hmm. as you proceed into the next chapter. Yeah, you can't just, in any biblical narrative, you can't just dive in at a particular point with a presupposition and allow that presupposition to govern your interpretation. You have to look at the pericope itself or the chapter itself, then its context within um, its surrounding chapters, then the context within the book itself, and then the context within the New Testament, and then the context within the Bible itself. Correct. Mm-hmm. You say, well, that's a lot of work. Well, there's a reason why God gives some to teach, right? It involves work. That's why in Acts 6, I believe it is, um, with the widows and the orphans, the deacons are given the responsibility of taking care of them, and the apostles give themselves to prayer and to the Word. It wasn't just mismanagement there. That was the wisdom of the Holy Spirit uh, to set aside certain men and ladies. (laughs) We have a teacher here tonight um, to study the Scriptures, and to come to uh, sound conclusions that can be taught in a legible, understandable way to the laity, if you will, so that the church can be edified and that we can focus on the right things. And it's so beautiful when it comes together. It's a lot of work, but it just oh, makes everything pop. Yeah, to see the whole, the holism, of, if you will, or the, uh, how everything systematizes, um, it's incredibly rewarding. And if you're not there yet, I pray that you do get there. Um, because I love systematic theology. I know people see that as a piece of cold business. That's too logical. It's too, it's too rational. And yet I agree that there's a place for paradoxical theology. But when you can systematize uh, a subject as complex as eschatology, so you can have the basic framework to understand what God is communicating to us about how he will consummate human history it's incredibly rewarding um so stick with us as we go through this so there's there's the background the wars have been pronounced it's known as the seven wars right yes and i believe this dovetails actually with the book of revelation when we have the seven trumpets and the uh the seven balls of wrath there's even um i hate to interrupt you i start to get like worked up (laughs) please please there's also another the way it dovetails with Revelation just gets really, really exciting because if you notice in the passage I just read, it, it talked about the blood of all the prophets and declaring the blood guilt upon them. In um, in the book of Revelation, you talk about the wicked city in which was in which was found all the blood of the prophets. So there's a parallel so there. Yeah, you see that parallel. And time won't suffice to go into the book of Revelation, but to give you that holistic view again, um, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about how the Old Covenant people, if they were to apostatize, that the curses that would come upon them would be sevenfold. I think it's Leviticus 26. And the curses and the sanctions found in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, we see this come to tragic fruition in apostate Israel after their rejection of their own Messiah. And remain in that Old Covenant system, they can only uh, receive what the Old Covenant can then give them which is judgment, and rather than identifying themselves with the new covenant people of God. And that's really what's going on in the book of Acts, in my understanding. And that's what Christ is pronouncing here, I believe, in, in prologue to the Olivet Discourse. Yes. And, and just to draw, to, just to make it very, very clear to the listener, 
that Matthew 23, 36, which um, again is the surely I say to you all these things will come upon this generation without some really, really good warrant, there's no reason to take this generation in that verse any differently than this generation in 2434. And you also not only have that parallel, you have all these things and you have all those things. And there's a build up to this as well. Even Matthew 12, I'm thinking of when he casts out the demon from the, the mute and he says, um, after the Jews, after the Pharisees, I believe, accuse him of doing it by the power of Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. He accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he says, I tell you the truth, this um, that judgment will come upon this generation, I believe it says. It uses that phrase, yes. this generation. So we see this, this build up. This generation is almost a <coughs> idiomatic um, epithet for... Yeah for the people at that time that were rejecting Christ. But the point I really wanted to bring out, so since this generation will be the same in both verses, if you start looking at the alternative um, explanations of this generation in verse 34, a lot of people will like to say this race. Mm -hmm. And I like sometimes to bring out things that people maybe haven't thought about to think about really how ghastly (laughs) the Mm -hmm. conclusions of their theology can be if if this generation means this race, and you read all these woes, what the dispensationalists have done who take that interpretation is they've just declared Jews of all time guilty of these crimes when it was really just the first century Jews. And I know dispensationalists are very zealous not, you know, to avoid any appearance of anti-Semitism, but that's like the worst sort that there could be. Yeah, I mean... Um, it was a specific generation that was guilty that Jesus was condemning and that that particular judgment would come upon, not Jews of all time. Yes, and that's the irony of, I think, dispensationalism because it's so pro-Jewish in many ways. And uh, I wouldn't doubt for a moment most of these pastors and teachers have high affection for the Jewish people. But consider your theology, my brothers, and the conclusions that you come to. It's problematic in this area. So pressing on, going now into Matthew 24, um, we read that the disciples are gathered on the Mount of Olives and they're marveling at the temple, the Herodian temple. Now the temple has a rich history as well. It was first constructed by Solomon, and then um, Herod revamped it, I guess, and and it went through destruction as well, and uh, the exile. Uh, So it was the epicenter for Jewish worship, for religious worship of the one true God in the Old Testament. And their disciples are marveling at this, and Jesus tells them not to do so, because he was going to become, excuse me, (coughs) the temple by which the New Testament church would be established. So given that, uh, take it away. Well, so beginning in in 24, um, (coughs) Matthew 24, verse 1, you have, you know, Jesus walking by the temple with his disciples, and he says to them, do you not see all these things? And again, I I note the repetition of of all these things, because it's very important. Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's one of the most amazing prophecies in the New Testament. Because it came to fulfillment, It came to fulfillment in just startling detail. But I've pointed this out to some people who really I think I would call Mm -hmm. hyper-literalists, that if they really want to take that particular prophecy in such a hyper-literal sense, it's impossible to be fulfilled in the future because Jesus was was pointing to a temple then standing of stones that then existed and said that these stones here 
will not be left upon another. Very not good some point. future stones, not some different stones, these stones yeah, here. Yeah, not the blueprint, right? Because yes. <laughs> I know some people have the blueprint for it, right? But those physical stones. Yes. And I know we're jumping ahead of ourselves, but just to solidify our confidence about this interpretation, historically, Josephus and other historians record that in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 through the Roman army, um, those stones are taken down stone by brick by brick because the gold right of the Herodian t uh, temple top had seeped down into the cracks of the stones. Um, and as a result, they wanted to keep those stones, uh, I mean, that gold after the fire had melted into the cracks. So therefore, they literally had to take that thing down brick by brick. Yes. I mean, Marvelous. it was, yeah, it, it's an amazing fulfillment, fulfillment of prophecy. <coughs> and an interesting part about that, it was in, in the destruction, originally when, when, when the Romans were, were sieging um, Jerusalem, the orders were not to destroy the temple. The, the Roman government wanted to take that as a prize. And it just seemed like, you know, all the best, you know, best attempts they made not to destroy it just were you know, waylaid by God, obviously, but it just seemed like, you know, just everything was pointing to it. It just had to be destroyed, even though no one really wanted it to be. Mm. I mean, that wasn't the goal of the Romans when they came in there. Right. But God is sovereign over time and history. So prophecy dictated otherwise. So guess what, folks? Yeah. It's going to be brought down brick by brick, stone by stone. And that's exactly what happened. So given that, we get to the three questions of the apostles. And <coughs> Excuse me. I want to note something here as well. Um, my particular position concerning these three questions is the first two have been fulfilled. The last one has not. Now, you may have a different interpretation. That's more than okie-dokie with me. If you have a, a part C of that verse, um, it's different to what I might hold to. But basically, the question is asked by the disciples on the revelation of this colossus redemptive truth that this temple, this center of Old Testament worship was going to be destroyed. They ask, tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age? So take it away. <laughs> no, uh, so your position then would be that the third one, and of the end of the age, is a separate question. Yes, I believe that's dealing with the separation of the sheep and the goats in, in Matthew 25. And the reason I hold to that and... Uh, it's interesting that we're having this dialogue so, yeah. so so early on. The reason I hold to that is because the word end is the word for consummate. It's not the same word found in verse 14. You know when it says, and the gospel shall be preached, and then the end shall come. I believe that's the destruction of Jerusalem. But in verse 3, I think we have the same word used in Matthew 28 in reference to the Great Commission. You know when he says, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the consummation of the age. The exact same phrase. Um, so that's my particular interpretation, but I still maintain that this is the end of the Jewish age. And that's alluded to in verse 14. That's alluded to in the book of Hebrews. That's alluded to in the epistles to Timothy. So there's plenty of proof text we can go to that's clearly established that, that redemptive historical truth. Um, but we'll see as we go through this, and I'll be interested to get your thoughts as we go through this together. That's why um, my interpretation might differ slightly from yours. Um, actually, it probably doesn't, and I have a, <coughs> somewhat of a unusual, maybe, interpretation of that, where I, I don't think on expressions like that we can be so rigid. Mm -hmm. I think you even pointed that out, that mm -hmm. there was the end of the Jewish age, but then we're also talking about the consummation of the—I I think sometimes 
as moderns, we tend to see, you know, we got, you know, this clear domino that this is just like the Jewish age and then the next one. And I don't think the Bible presents it that way. I think it these time periods are overlapping and then there's, you know, the mm-hmm. whole theme of, you know, the intrusion of the inter- eternal state into the, into the present age. So I, I take that as having multiple layers of meaning and meaning in, in, in one sense, yes, the, the end of the, the temple economy and things like that. But I think it also is pointing towards the consummation. Right. And I think that's um, very compatible with my position. Um, and we touched on this um, on the previous show that we can't in all instances have this cut and dry absolution about every single verse mm-hmm. pertaining to eschatology. I think one which we would share in common is Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is not a strict sequential chronological prediction in my estimation when it says, you know, many that sleep in the dust shall arise, some to everlasting life and some to eternal judgment. I think that has a first level fulfillment in the first century with, you know, the the Old Testament saints that rose mm-hmm. after the resurrection of Christ, but it has obviously 1 Corinthians 15, its ultimate fulfillment, Matthew 13 as well, in the Yes. In the glorified cosmos on the last day, as yes. John 6 puts it. So we have to work in these layers, and that's not a compromise to systematic theology. That's seeking uh, to have the scriptures speak for themselves rather than us forcing a strict, narrow category on a particular verse. But we can have a general framework that gives us solid definitions. At yeah, the same time. and. I mean, it's it's totally typical with the Bible where a historical or even theological event of the Old Covenant finds its greater uh, fulfillment in the New. So it, it wouldn't be a big surprise that things which were happening at the end of the Old Testament age find an even greater, deeper, larger fulfillment in the end of the quote-unquote church age. Yeah, I can give you an example for Bible students out there who may be thinking, well, is that is, is there an example? Well, there's plenty, but one that definitely comes to mind is Ezekiel 37 and 38 with Gog and Magog. We see that uh, analogy or that illustration used at the end of the millennium. So whether you're airmail, postmail, or pre-mail, you've got to agree that is yet future. And yet Ezekiel in 38 and 37 concerning Gog and Magog, I believe has historical fulfillment as well. Yes. So there we have it. We have that layered fulfillment. Unless people are going to be fighting on horseback with wooden shields and bucklers. And oh, you, you haven't heard of the newspaper eschatology interpreting this? I, in a debate, <laughs> actually got in a debate with somebody about how many horses there are on the planet and things like that to try to see if we could have this future battle. So this wooden literal sense of interpreting apocalyptic literature is highly problematic. And I think that needs to be said in preference here to what we're going to interpret. Apocalyptic language is apocalyptic language. And it's full of hyperbole. It's it's full of metaphor. It's full of symbolism. It's full of um, uh, language that is dramatic in order to paint the picture of a dissolvement of an economy or covenant or an era. And that has to be kept in mind. And we will allude to some of these Old Testament scriptures as we go through this, um, but that is truly uh, the correct hermeneutic, I believe, when approaching this. There's something else very interesting in those questions where the disciples asked Jesus about the sign of his coming, mm-hmm. and it's so easy for us today to import meaning into that that they wouldn't have had. They didn't even understand he wasn't going to go anywhere yet. 
I mean, the disciples didn't understand he was going to die. I mean, Peter had to be rebuked for that and called the devil. Mm. Right. So there's absolutely no reason to think in these questions that they're asking about a second coming that they didn't have any clue was going to happen. They didn't know mm. about a first going, never mind a second coming. That's an excellent point. Yeah, we, we, um, we have a bit of, what's the word, anachronisms here. Yeah. Is that the word? Yeah. Yes. When, when you read back into the past some futuristic model. Right. And there's no problem doing that with some passages when you realize God's the ultimate author. But this isn't a thing of God authoring something. This is an actual question asked by the actual disciples and it had meaning for them. As a historical narrative. Yes. And that meaning could not have been the second coming. They had no clue about a second yeah. coming. So when we're going to look at it in a few moments, verses that talk about the stars falling to the earth, the moon being turned to blood and things like that. Um, we can't look at these verses and say, oh, that's what the video would have recorded. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to get beyond Macintosh theology <laughs> as much as I like Max. Yes, actually, yeah. if we could have a parenthetical <laughs> moment of smugness for my colleague here, my uh, guest tonight. I've actually bought a MacBook Pro. So uh, in the previous show, you talked about me drinking the Kool-Aid. It might have just happened. Uh, a couple now of weeks you are ago. truly sanctified. I am truly <laughs> sanctified. So I felt free to invite you back again, considering <laughs> that <laughs> that homogeny we now have, the thing we have in common. But we mustn't adopt that wooden literal sense. This is what the video will record. This is what the camera will have caught. We have to step into the sandals of the early disciples and take it from the perspective of what they understood about the Old Testament, Old Testament, because at this time they didn't have the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty slow of understanding of what even they had. Right. Um, so, so with those, these questions are really important because after, you know, pointing out that they couldn't have been asking about the second coming, you have to ask yourself, what prompted these questions? There's a context to the questions. Why, if they're not talking about the second coming and they're asking about a coming, what in the world caused them to ask that question? And that is what's going to give definition to what they meant by coming. Mm-hmm. What prompted them is Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, why would that prompt them to ask about his coming? Right. So that is very, very important. I'll, I'll cheat and give the what I think the answer is, and we'll be touching on this theme over and over and over again, but that throughout the Old Testament, whenever there was a judgment either upon Israel or upon nations, it was spoken of as God coming or visiting. Right. We've got Isaiah 19, I think uh, Micah. There's all, all kinds Gains, of them. The yeah. Psalms. Um, so the Old Testament scriptures are just full of this language of using the word coming in judgment. Correct. I'm coming in the cloud. Right. Um, I believe Isaiah and Micah says. Um, and this idea of coming, we we're going to see that it's a reference to Daniel. Daniel 7 about coming up to the ancients of days. Not coming down, but coming up. And this is a reference to his enthronement over his creation, not so much a reference to the consummation of human history at his second coming, as we classically refer to it now. And there's nothing wrong with that category, by the way. We don't have to throw out the the phrase second coming. And we believe in a second coming. Right. I just don't believe this passage is teaching directly about it. There there could be echoes of it, for sure. Or even in the New Testament scriptures themselves, we have the word parousia used in different ways, the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. You can read um, John 14, 15, and 16 when he promises the comforter, the advocate, and he uses the same word, he is coming. But when did that take place? I would argue, quite clearly, on the day of Pentecost. There's an absolute Mm -hmm. build-up to that day 
for the inauguration of the new covenant people and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for service within his body. Um, so we have to um, get over this kind of simplistic, we've got this one word that means this one thing, it has to mean the same thing in every other context. We have to allow the context Correct. to define what these words mean, because we do it in English. We do it all the time, don't we? You know, I am going to work, it does not work. Is that a verb or a noun? You know, um, and the list can go on and on of how we can use uh, the same word in different ways. And it's interesting. There's so, you know, I'm telling you, you could spend a whole hour just on the questions. Mm-hmm. Something else that I just think is awesome to point out is that the whatever the disciples didn't understand, one thing is clear they understood from the way they asked the questions is they understood that Jesus wasn't just saying it was going to be destroyed. He was taking some kind of responsibility as being the agent of its destruction because they asked him about his coming. Right, that he was going to judge. He was going to, in some way, he was going to destroy the temple. That they understood in some way, Mm -hmm. which that's pretty good for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. This is is coming as um, a sign of uh, his judgment. So when they asked there in uh, part B of this verse, the sign of thy coming, um, the best commentary I could give on that is the sign of thy coming in judgment. What would be the sign? Right, and some people will say, well, that's strange. I mean, obviously, when it's in rubble, that's a pretty good sign right there. But that actually leads to, to what we were talking about before with Daniel 7. When they're asking for the sign of his coming, they're talking about the sign of his authority to mm. judge, the sign that he can now judge the temple. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's even the more fuller meaning of what's going there. The, the sign that you are now the messianic it, king, king that in is, heaven, that is judging. High, yes, the great high priest and king who now has the, the full authority to dissolve the old covenant. Because every time the temple was destroyed in the Old Testament, it was... A sign of a great judgment from God. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes we forget today the significance of the temple to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. That you know, this wasn't just a you know, okay, you know, it was a beautiful building. It's too bad, you know, it mm-hmm. you know got destroyed. But to them, they knew that that was a serious sign of God's displeasure. It wasn't just a you know, mis- you know, oh, right. yeah, just right. bad luck. No, it wasn't just oh, gee whiz, you know, yeah. we lost that pretty little temple of ours. This is devastating. This is. The end of an era. This is an end of, dare I say, even a religion. And they haven't been able to practice. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, put, you know, look at this from, just say, a Jewish person that rejects Christianity. No Jewish person has been able to practice biblical Judaism since then. Right. Because there's no temple. There's no temple. R- rabbinic Judaism is not biblical Judaism. Right, right. The old covenant Judaism. Correct. Because I think even using the word Judaism is a bit anachronistic again because mm-hmm. we have the old covenant people who were saved by the Abrahamic covenant, but they had this overlay of the law in the Mosaic uh, administration to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I'm Kleinian, so you're going to get some of that, you're going to get some of that uh, covenant theology there. But um, suffice it to say, um, the disciples knew that this was definitely speaking to his contemporary audience and these questions were in, in regard to the subject matter at hand. Correct. And he says, this is going to happen. Get ready. Don't fall asleep. Stay spiritually alert. 
And then he proceeds to give them the warning sign. So let's begin in verse 4 when it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you not be troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in divers places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, personally, before uh, uh, you exposit these verses directly, I do believe this again ties in with Revelation with the Horseman of the Apocalypse and Revelation mm-hmm. chapter 6. So in your own time, listeners, you can go over to Revelation chapter 6 and see how these parallel. Um, but let's flesh this out for us, if you could, Dee Dee. Sure. I didn't know if there was a particular one you wanted to focus on or just touch on each one. <laughs> let's um, touch on the general... Um, the the general flow of it, but uh, if there's any one that sticks out to you as very significant, then feel free, obviously. Yeah, there's always a few. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, as far as um, many false messiahs, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, without getting into great detail, that was a a time period of messianic fervor. The New Testament records some, and then in Josephus and other historical Mm -hmm. records, there was no shortage. (coughs) There was no shortage of of people, you know, claiming claiming to be messianic deliverers. Mm-hmm. I you normally don't really see that disputed, though I've had a few people, you know, do that. Um, more importantly, I think, is when we start getting into, like, the wars and rumors of wars, people like to to point to that today. But the, the fact is there's always been wars and rumors of wars. wars. Yeah. What actually, you know, why was Jesus stating that as a sign if you think about it, the only time wars and rumors of wars are a sign is if you're in a time of peace, because mm-hmm. otherwise it's not a sign. And this was during a period of time that was what I'm probably going to mispronounce it because I'm not good with, you know, <laughs> was it Pax Romana or Pax Romana was the peace of Rome. This was right. during a relatively peaceful time. Mm-hmm. So that would have been a sign to the disciples that things were going to get turbulent. Right, right. And we do have historical narratives and some allusions, I think, even in the book of Acts to... Uh, the rising of particular tribes and nations within Palestine. Uh, the Zealots, you know, their beef with Rome, and um, there were other historical um, historians who noted at this time there was, wasn't there, the, the rise of certain people groups and certain nations that, yeah. that had odds with one another. I know at the, you know, probably towards the end we'll reference, like, the, the pages you can yes. hear flipping, but yes. I have listed a ton of and by the way, for somebody who, I mean, I will provide a link on, yes. on, on the uh, the homepage, but for those who want to go directly to your homepage and find this, they go to predatorsite.com and then they click on a particular tab, right? That will Yeah, on the right-hand side, there is a, um, a box that'll say commentary. Mm-hmm. And if you click that, it'll bring you to the main landing page for the commentary and then there'll be one more link mm-hmm. um, to hit for um, plain text version. Because it's so much text, I don't want you to have all the graphics and the black background and stuff like that. So you get yes. a couple of clicks and you're, and you're right there. Perfect. And also in this verse, just to note as well, it says you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So it's not relegated to hearsay. You know, it's not just like, well, it won't actually be happening, but you'll hear about it. But the general emphasis is there's going to be this anxiety. Yes. Not necessarily you're seeing bloodshed right in front of you. But there's going to be rumors of wars. You're going to hear of wars. And this is going to be the first tipping point of this impending judgment upon the old covenant people. And then we also have nations rising against nations, kingdoms 
kingdoms against kingdom. We certainly see that with Rome and Israel, even though they were in cahoots for a while, I believe, in order to persecute the church. Um, and there was um, plenty of others, too, that were, were going on. Something the, the Roman Empire was made up of various nations, and there was all mm. kinds of internal strife and civil war going on. That's right. That's often overlooked of about the yeah. Roman Empire. It was comprised of different nations. They had supremacy over it, but within the Roman Empire, there were different nations. Yeah, they let them maintain their national identity. For There's some that they didn't. Right. But for a lot of, of nations, if it, as long as they were, you know, paying tribute and not, you know... Right, tipping the hat. Yes. Then, okay, you can have your little thing. Yes. Right, because we're still the big boys. We're still in charge. And then famines, well, we know in the Book of Acts, with Judea, there was a famine in Judea. But I'm sure there was other famines yes. at the time. Because war and famine go together. Mm-hmm. Um, wherever there's war, there's going to be going to be famine. Right. And then earthquakes. That's the big one. Yes. Futurists love those earthquakes. Yes. Oh, oh, we have more earthquakes now, right? Now, if you could, uh, in my understanding, um, there really isn't an exponential growth to earthquakes. It's just that we have the tools now, right, to register earthquakes. Well, that's true. But also, the the passage doesn't say anything about there being (coughs) increasing earthquakes. It just says that there'll be um, earthquakes in various places. It doesn't say that earthquakes are going to increase. That's something that people are reading. And the reason they're reading into it is because it's the phrase, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. And then Mm. they'll go back and say sorrows literally means birth pangs. And because birth pangs, Mm. you know, increase... You know, it's the time for, you know, the baby comes near, and that's where they get that. It's very exciting, you know. I mean, let's take a step back. You'd have to ask the question, why would you be excited about the apocalypse in the future? But it really doesn't comport with the context here. Talking to the contemporary audience, these are things that have been, I think, blown out of proportion, but there were sure warning signs of this coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he says in verse 8, this is the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, this is a very defensible, preteristic interpretation, because what's the book of Acts about? Yes, correct. <laughs> I mean, that was happening. As I once again jokingly said, I don't think any of us today are really too worried about any of our Jewish neighbors coming hauling us off to the no. synagogue and, you know, beating the daylights no, out of my, my boss is very friendly. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, you know, I really <laughs> don't think that's a modern concern, but that it's, definitely was a concern back, back then. then. And notice the, uh, the language here, deliver you. Yes, not deliver the the generation in the future, but again, he's addressing his contemporary audience. You know, I don't, I, I'm one, I'm a type of person though who doesn't place too much weight on you because I think a lot of times in the Bible you can say, well, that is just towards the general that that's towards the believer or the church member. But I think yeah. in conjunction with everything else we're talking about, I think that's a very fair point. Yes, you do, but it is a. a a supplement to yes. to, to the uh, the overriding context of this verse that they will deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. So there's repetition here of the persecution that they were going to endure for the sake of the gospel, and you will be hated of all nations. That was indeed the case. Correct, because mm-hmm. there was again you have to remember how the Roman Empire was right. made up. But something with the beginning of sorrows instead of starting to you know you know, go into the whole birth pangs things and trying to then import that into say there's going to be more and more earthquakes, in which you're correct that there really mm. hasn't been an increase. Mm. But I think 
the more biblical way to view that is to realize that um, birth pangs and things like that should remind us of the curse. We mm-hmm. shouldn't be running to Richter scales. We should remember that that's in the first um, uh, verse of the Bible. Now we're dealing with a judgment passage. Jesus is bringing up a term that l- normally will refer to birth pangs. I think that's much more a, a, a biblical mm-hmm. theology way to look at it is that, mm-hmm. again, we're talking about a, a, a judgment curse. Right, right, yes. And this is the thrust of all covenant Israel when it came to the covenantal sanctions. It wasn't so much this dramatic uh, chronology of apocalyptic events that would make a good volume series one day in the future called Left Behind. Right, bit of polemics there. But um, it was to do with right worship and wrong worship. In the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of this, all, all these exciting events that are going to happen in the future. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right worship, wrong worship. And since the apostate or covenant people refused at large to join the new covenant community and embrace their Messiah, they had wrong worship. And this is what the book of Hebrews is about. So the curses are coming down for idolatry and idolizing their nation and the center of their nation, which was the temple. So what's being judged here is idolatry. And covenant curses are normally linked directly to the act of idolatry. Now, it has many symptoms. That's when we have the transgressions of the law. But essentially, it's this idolatry of wanton uh, religious power and national identity within that rather than Christ. And I like to bring up at least for, for things where we're, we're talking about how you have to have the Old Testament background to interpret some of these, which is really all that the disciples would have had. I'd like to at least bring up a, a couple examples for you know my position that we should be viewing the birth pangs more as just a, a covenant curse type of thing rather than the whole increasing in intensity. There, there's, a, there's a great verse, um, uh, Jeremiah 13, 21, Um, in which it was said, What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? So again, Mm. in a judgment passage, that's what it's speaking of. So I think that's really the proper way. That is very clear. And and I have like 10 verses that do with that. It's very common in the Old Testament that when judgment is being spoken of, Mm -hmm. that it's then compared to a woman in labor. Right, and this goes back to the Genesis curse, yes. as we read it in Genesis 3. See, it's consistent. We go to Genesis, we go to the prophecies of the Old Testament, and then we go to the Olivet Discourse, and we see how it correlates. Um, and then continuing on, it says, verse 10, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And false prophets shall, shall rise, and shall deceive many. And we see this in Second Thessalonians, Mm-hmm. Quite clearly, we see this um, these warm passages in the Sermon on the Mount, you know about the false prophets that will come. Um, we see this in the Book of Acts. We see this in Corinthians with the super apostles. We have all these men claiming religious power, but indeed being false prophets. Do you have any examples that? Uh, well, Acts eight, Saul before he became Paul. Yes. Um, Eight one Saul was um, consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Paul was going from house to house, dragging people, dragging mm-hmm. people off. Yeah, uh, in the 
in the I- idea that he was serving his God, in the yes. idea that he was servicing this, uh, in service to the purposes of the kingdom, and in actuality being an enemy of the kingdom. And that's why we have the Damascus experience and his radical conversion uh, through that. So also the Simon the Sorcerer and others, um, throughout the book of Acts, we have these false prophets that, oh, Apost- yes. that Apostle Paul had to deal with. Uh, so he wants on their team, if you will, uh, by God's grace, is, is following Christ on team A, you know, on the right team. And um, he has to deal with this this constant bombardment of false prophets. And uh, uh, Jesus warns not only here, but elsewhere uh, about these pro- false prophets that would deceive, even if, if it was possible, even the elect. Yeah, and um, Josephus really does record a great many of them mm-hmm. in, in, in great detail. Mm-hmm. Many uh, of which were claiming even to be Messiah or to have some sort of oh, yes. salvific message to bring. Because, you know, that ties into the whole Daniel 70 weeks thing, but mm-hmm. a great many of the Jewish people at that time understood that there was a certain time frame, prophetic time frame, that was ending around this period. So they were mm-hmm. expecting someone at this time. Mm-hmm. So that really laid a lot of, you know, ec- you know expectation in the air for right. people to come and be and deceive. Right. And then verse 12 says, Because of iniquity shall, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he shall endure to the end shall be saved. Now, interesting. Um, first of all, verse 12 is just um, further commentary of what we've already covered in verse 10 and 11, that the, the result of this, this explosion of false prophets and persecution results in greater iniquity and harder rebellion against God and the Messiah. But when it says, he will endure to the end shall be saved, I think this is twofold. I think there was relief that came to the true church after the destruction of Jerusalem. But also I think this is telescoping as well, just in principle, concerning the perseverance of the saints, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Correct. Yeah, would that be your take on it? Yeah. Um, and I don't think we can... T- uh, some people see saved there and think of salvation in the ultimate sense. Consummated sense, yeah. But I think you have to interpret that in the same way. It's like the verse that says that women shall be saved in childbearing. I don't think that they mean that women don't right. have children, you know, right. going to hell. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. So I, I, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's... Um, will be saved out of this judgment. Their their, their 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 lives will be saved. Now, now some of them, you know, obviously, or, you know, ultimate salvation is in view, but I don't believe that verse is directly speaking. No, no, this is this is not a order salutis passage. Right. This is dealing with a, a order historia passage. Yes. The order of redemptive history. So this word saved, um, we can't, again, as I was saying before, pour the ultimate definition into and I think also this dovetails with Luke 21 again the Olivet Discourse a parallel passage it says impatience possess your soul you possess your souls and in other words yeah. if you don't succumb to these false prophets if you don't succumb to the temptation to go back to the old covenant then you'll be spared from this judgment yeah correct and I think that's so clear in context and, it, and uh, I think anybody listening can clearly see that as well now verse 14 Interesting verse. This trips up a lot of people. Oh, I know. This is a big one. I've yes. got it, like, highlighted and yeah. underlined. And that's because usually one that somebody will say to me, well, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Talk <laughs> about a, a walk on the wild side. You mean to tell me you've got this hubris, you know, uh, proud position that this is being fulfilled. And you quietly say yes, but then you add, 
careful qualification. At least I try to do. But verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom, which is the good news, that is an evangelical statement. This is the gospel of salvation. Um, shall be preached in all the world for witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. So this is typically used as... Um, especially, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes here, uh, our Armenian uh, friends, you know, who believe that the second coming of Christ can be contingent upon our evangelist, evangelistic endeavours. Right, Christ can't <laughs> come back till the gospel's been preached in every country, under every rock. Right, right. right. Um, I think that's problematic. If you really consider that, if you have rational, exhaustive penetration on that thought, <laughs> you know, there's always going to be somebody somewhere, right? There's always going to be a nation or a tribe or a aloof rogue group somewhere. Well, not only that, if you... To put a contingent upon that. If you're that. really worried about people going to hell and you want them to have as much time as possible, then it seems to me you would want to slow down missionary activity because what if, you know, because of you, Jesus mm. comes back tomorrow and in the meantime, your neighbor still hasn't made their free will choice to believe the gospel. Right, so there are, there are some issues there, but the, the basic interpretation in context here I'm thinking of Colossians. I'm thinking of Titus. Oh, I've got all kinds yes. of words. <laughs> <laughs> in Colossians 1, right, we, we read that Apostle Paul indeed affirmed that the gospel had been preached in all the world as a witness. And what the word means here is the known world. Yeah, right. Okay. And you want to flesh that out? Well, you know, even today uh, we use terms like that in an overly expansive you know, um, sense where we use yeah. the, 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 the term, you know, world um, in that way. You know, uh, I love this more than anything in the whole world. world. You yeah. know, you're not, you're using that You mean the world to me type of thing. You're right. Yes. It's, it's using this grand, all-encompassing language to talk about the significance of what's been stated. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, so that poses some difficulty to some people because they hear they see in all the world and believe that it's meaning the entire um planet earth mm -hmm. you know that the gospel has to be preached throughout that and at this time you know obviously i mean there hasn't even been people sent out of this small little geographic area mm -hmm. um so they'll say well you know we know that this can't have happened yet because this hasn't been fulfilled but there's this is a point where I think probably need to quote maybe three or four verses just to really yes please to, no, to put it in solidify this yeah because this is this is a, this is a big one mm -hmm. um, so we have Colossians uh, chapter one verses five through six and Paul says because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you ha as it has also in all the world. And is bringing forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of the God of truth. Mm -hmm. So Paul is saying that to the Colossians that the truth that came to them has come to the whole world. Mm -hmm. So obviously Paul is understanding that phrase differently than we are today. Now we might not like that, but you know, idiomatic speech of other cultures sometimes does give people problems. We don't mm -hmm. understand why that is, but the fact mm -hmm. is it is. Mm -hmm. We don't have to like it, right. but we have to let the Bible speak for itself. Right, um, I mean, I don't mean for your curveball here, because I believe this will support what you're saying. In Luke 21, it says that the whole world was taxed, right? Yes. Right. Well, 
Ta- well, I'm thinking more in Luke where it says the whole world had to come to be taken the census. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yes. And I would say, you know. Um, well, that's not, that's not every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the woods. Yeah, you know, you know <laughs> King uh, Quasikittle from South America didn't paddle on over, you know. Right, exactly. From South America to get to right. get counted, right. you know. Um, this one here is even more powerful. you got Colossians 1.23. Um, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, or not moved f- away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah, I mean, how clear could it be? Yeah, I mean, we're not even, I mean, Paul's getting really specific. Every creature under heaven. heaven. Is he even using this kind of detailed language? Yeah. It's not just a general step Yeah, anymore. he's saying every, I mean, as far as Paul's, I mean, you can't get any more expansive than that right there. Yeah, so... This is what he's talking about. He's talking about how the gospel in the first generation, as far as the upper regions, we read this in, in, in the book of Acts, you know, you had to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the upper ends of the earth. That was accomplished within the first century. It was actually accomplished by Acts, well, at least partially accomplished by Acts 2 at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. It says, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Right. I, I know some people might think that should include Australia. No offense to <laughs> <laughs> Australians yeah. here, but I, I don't know if it was Aborigines back then. I well, don't know. But according, were, according to the biblical theology here, that did not have to include, you know, Australia. That was the Roman nation. Yeah, the, we didn't even have I mean, the British Roman Empire, Empire then. Yeah. We didn't even have the British Empire then that had this idea to do away with certain persons, you know, in Australia. And yeah. I, uh, I don't endorse what they did, of course. Um, I love my Australian brothers. <laughs> right. I don't know why, we, you know, yeah, I was starting to pick on Australia. Yeah, normally yeah, pick on Canada, but no, anyway. something to do with the World Cup right now, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but we see quite clearly that within the scriptures themselves, we have an easy fulfillment of this verse. Yeah. And this is not like quoting Josephus or this extra biblical text. Right. We're using biblical language to interpret biblical language. And that's the first thing we should do. Now, I know, I mean, this is another controversy, like the new perspective on Paul. One of the things that N.T. Wright would say, well, you know, you're not thinking of Second Temple Judaism. You're not thinking in the right language. Uh, how do you reconcile the two? The hermeneutic, as I understand it, is you first go to Scripture. And you but, but then secondly, you can go to history. Of course, because right, things aren't in a vacuum. And, mm-hmm. But what's more important about these verses, especially that one in Acts 2, is we're not taking this phrase that appears in an entirely foreign context. Um, that's talking about the gospel of the kingdom being preached. The, the Acts 2 passage is talking about the gospel being preached at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So it is the exact same subject matter and then the exact same terminology. And when these Jews left Jerusalem from Pentecost, they brought the gospel back to their home countries. And mm-hmm. that's that's how it was spread. Mm-hmm. That's how it was spread. And, and then verse 15, I know we're probably not going to have time to wrap everything up here. I'll have you on again. Uh, but I do want to cover uh, 15 here, uh, I guess in closing. Uh, given the time constraints, With the abomination of desolation. desolation yes, and let's let's just let's give the the audience who's stuck with us something really to take home with them, so to speak. Verse fifteen: When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let him who reads let him understand. Let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. What's going on here, Dee Dee? With this? Okay, well. This is where it becomes very helpful to go to the parallel passages. Mm-hmm. You have Matthew, which is 
understood by most people to be written more towards a Jewish audience, and you have Luke that is um, more towards a Gentile audience. And in Luke, the idioms are oftentimes explained when it doesn't seem like a Gentile audience would understand it. And in the exact same place in the discourse that this verse appears in Matthew and Luke, which would be Luke 21, verses 20 through 21, instead of when you see the abomination of desolation, Luke records it as, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation is near. Yeah, so that's the abomination that causes desolation, that the the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem it's like, hey, get a clue. Right. <laughs> you know, this place is going to burn to the ground. You need to get out. And for those who doubt that that is in the same place, the very mm. next sentence in Luke is, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, which is the exact same thing yes. that's here. That's right. And this is quote- uh, a quotation of Daniel, and he actually referenced Daniel, the prophet here. Um, but we use the immediate context of Christ in the Olivet Discourse to best tag, if you will, right. what he means by the abomination of destiny. Right, especially, if, yeah, I mean, Luke explains it as Luke nor, uh, does a lot of times for some more difficult concepts. So mm. the abomination of desolation as a trigger for when those who are in Jerusalem need to flee to the mountains is when the um, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. Right, that's right. You know, of course, there's a whole lot more packed in there when you could talk about where that originally appeared in Daniel and what that means and it it is also pointing to the destruction of the temple but we don't even really even need to go there to get the basic understanding of what the passage is talking about it's when Jerusalem is surrounded by by armies and we know when that happened right and that happened in AD 70 and not only did that happen just hearing that should bring up an interesting question where it says I mean, I would think, wouldn't it be a little bit too late to be running away once it's surrounded by armies? I mean, that's kind of hard to escape. But the the remarkable part of the prophecy there is Jerusalem was surrounded, but then all of a sudden... There was a gap, right? Yeah, they they hear, uh, um, you know, sometimes my memory, I, I don't know if remember if this is when Nero died or there was something else going on, you know, in mm. Rome that... They left for a little while, mm-hmm. and that only hardened the zealots that were left in the city because they thought God was delivering them. That made them even more fiercely to oppose the Romans. They were having a party, saying, "See, you know, mm-hmm. you know, run away, you yeah, cowards!" You know, and failing to see. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, the Christians the saw that, and they got out of town. They saw that as their opportunity to escape. There was a wormhole to escape. Yes, and they had to take it. So yeah. that was actually quite remarkable there because the Romans did come back. And when they came back, there was no other opportunity to flee. So Jesus' warning was spot on. Right. You know, we see this happen, run. And don't stick around. Yeah, don't stick Get around. Get out of town. Get out of town. And uh, flee to the mountains. And so they did. And, and so they did. And the, and the church who heeded to that in Judea was spared. Is that correct? correct? Yes. I mean, we don't have like a lot of historical records as far as you know who died and who didn't, but um, the you know church historians claim that no Christians died in the siege of Jerusalem. I don't mm-hmm. have anything to disprove that, and it seems that was Jesus's purpose in telling people to flee. So I find that believable. Yes, and I think a concluding thought, and this will be fleshed out when we do this again, because we need to finish this off, of course. But um, I would also argue the abomination of desolation when the Roman army, as enemies of God are coming in. They are being used by God. And we see this in the Old Testament, don't we? We see this in mm-hmm. Isaiah 10, I believe, when it talks about the Syrians persecuting Israel and how uh, Assyria would be used to come in and mm-hmm. judge Israel. And then, as a result, God would turn around and judge Assyria 
for judging Israel. For doing it too harshly, for, for being going over and beyond. Above and beyond. So when we have this language, the abomination that causes desolation, we have this Old Testament backdrop to understand that God uses even his enemies and these world powers to judge his people. Be, and we also have to... Even if they're abomination. Yeah, and what was particularly abominable about them is they would carry before them those um, ensigns that some of the soldiers even worshipped as idols themselves. So they had this reverence for, for their standards and ensigns mm-hmm. that were symbols of, of the empire. For, so for those to be coming into the city and surrounding the city, that right there is, you know, idolatry practiced right there. So mm-hmm. that, that, that was another big problem. Yeah. So the Roman army comes in. The early church were warned in the Olivet Discourse by Christ himself that when you see these things happen, you've got the tip-offs with the warden signs, the rumors of wars, the famines, the earthquakes. You know, stay awake. And he says this in Mark, you know, I say unto you all, you know, stay alert, stay awake. And don't allow this judgment to sweep you away with apostate Israel who had rejected their Messiah in that first generation. And for those who are going to think that Matthew 24 is talking about, you know, you know, like left behind stuff, you know, this huge, you know, worldwide mm. nuclear war, whatever they're in- envisioning. Remember, Jesus just told them the to flee to the mountains. If this was a worldwide catastrophe, fleeing to the mountains isn't going to help well, you much. If there's a nuclear holocaust yes. going on, how does the mountains of Petra offer any yes. refuge? This is obviously a local judgment that you can get away from. Right, and let down it says, I mean, this is coming from me who's not a, a Sabbatarian, but certainly not observing the Sabbath on the Saturday. It says, pray that, pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath. You know, it's, it's like... That's not a problem today. It's, it's not a problem today. So the historical uh, reality of this is, I would say, uh, fully persuasive when you allow the scriptures to speak for, for, for themselves. And that's what we're going to continue to do. We will pick this back up at a future recording, a future time, and give us some feedback. If you're enjoying this, if you're enjoying uh, these studies in eschatology, then please let us know. And if you have questions about the stuff and the material that we have covered, we will uh, try our best to, uh, to answer those questions. But it is an important subject. People say, you know, eschatology, let's just forget about it. You know, it'll all pan out in the end. And yes, it's important first and foremost that we affirm those grand uh, eschatological truths of Christ's second coming, the final judgment, the new heavens, the new earth. But in order to correctly put everything in its right place, such as the Great Commission, if we have this defeatist attitude that all this is yet upon us, it is yet future, I think it's going to radically affect not only our worship but how we uh, look at the Great Commission. So eventually we'll get to those applications of how important this is. But I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, thank you again, Dee Dee, for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Some real rich thought uh, that you've given to us there. And, uh, yeah, we'll do it again. Um, Awesome. And we'll conclude on this one. But uh, in the meantime, may God continue to bless the study of his word. We'll see you next time. God bless you all.